Chapter twenty three of the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, seventeen sixty eight to eighteen hundred, part three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicolni, Memoirs of Chateaubriand, seventeen sixty eight to eighteen hundred, part three, by Francois Rene de Chateaubriand, chapter twenty three. London from April till September, eighteen twenty two. Charlotte four leagues from beckles in the small town of bungay lived the reverend mr a clergyman of the church of england remarkable for his knowledge of greek and mathematics his family consisted of his wife still young and agreeable in person mind and manners and an only daughter about fifteen having been introduced to the family i was better received there than anywhere else we drank after the old english fashion and remained two hours at table after the departure of the ladies mr who had been in america took great delight in relating his travels and listening to accounts of mine as well as in conversing about newton and homer his daughter who had become learned in order to gratify him was an excellent musician and sang as well as madame pasta does now she appeared again at tea and charmed away the infectious drowsiness of the old clergyman leaning on the end of the piano i listened to her in silence when the music was finished the young lady questioned me about france and about literature she asked me for plans of study was particularly anxious to become acquainted with the italian authors and begged me to give her some readings and remarks on the divina commedia and the Gerusalemme. by degrees i felt the timid charm of an attachment proceeding from the soul i had decked out my floridans but i could not have ventured to pick up this lady's glove i was embarrassed when i attempted to translate a passage in tasso while much more at ease with the chaster and more masculine genius of dante we were relatively of suitable ages there is always something melancholy in those attachments which are not formed till middle life if persons do not meet in the prime of youth the recollections of the person beloved are not mixed up with those years when one has lived without knowing her those days which belong to other associations are painful to the memory and cut off as it were from our existence is there a disproportion in age inconveniences are increased the elder has begun life before the younger was born the younger is destined to remain alone in turn one has lived in a solitude on this side the cradle the other will pass through a solitude beyond a tomb the past has been a desert to the former the future will prove a desert to the latter it is difficult to love with all the conditions of happiness youth beauty suitable time and harmony of heart taste character graces and years having had a fall from my horse i remained for some time at mr s house it was winter the dreams of my life began to fade away before reality miss became more reserved she ceased to bring me flowers she was not disposed to sing had any one told me that i should pass the remainder of my life unknown in the bosom of this retired family i should have died with pleasure nothing is wanting to love but continuance to be at once eden before the fall and hosanna without end grant that beauty remains that youth does not decay and that the heart never wearies and you reproduce heaven love is so completely the sovereign happiness that it is haunted by the desire of being eternal it pronounces no oaths but those which are irrevocable if joys fail it seeks to eternize its sorrows a fallen angel love still continues to use the language which it employed in its incorruptible sojourn its hope is never to cease in its double nature and double illusions here below it aims at perpetuation by mortal thoughts and endless generations with dread i saw the moment approaching when i should be obliged to withdraw 
on the evening of the day announced for my departure the dinner was gloomy to my great astonishment mr withdrew with his daughter at the dessert and i was left alone with his wife she became extremely embarrassed i thought she was going to reproach me for an attachment which she had discovered but of which i had never spoken she looked at me cast down her eyes and blushed she was extremely attractive in her embarrassment and there is no sentiment of tenderness which she might not have inspired herself at length making a great effort to overcome the feeling which deprived her of speech sir said she in english you have seen my embarrassment i do not know whether charlotte is agreeable to you but it is impossible to deceive a mother and my daughter certainly has become attached to you mr and myself have considered the matter you are in all respects agreeable to us we believe you would make our daughter happy you have no country you have just lost your relations your property is sold what then can recall you to france till you inherit our property you shall live with us of all the distress i have experienced that was the most sensible and the greatest i threw myself at mrs s knees i covered her hands with my kisses and tears she thought these were tears of joy and she began to sob from pleasure she put out her hand to ring the bell called for her husband and her daughter stop i cried i am married she fainted i went out and without going to my room again left the house on foot i reached beckles and after having written a letter to mrs of which i regret not having kept a copy i posted off to london i have ever retained the most agreeable most tender and most grateful recollection of this event before my renown mr s was the only family which took an interest in my well-being and received me with true kindness poor unknown proscribed without attraction or beauty there was presented to me the prospect of a happy future a country a delightful wife to rescue me from my forlorn condition a mother almost as beautiful to take the place of my aged mother and a father well informed amiable and attached to learning to replace him of whom heaven had deprived me what had i as compensation for all that there could be no illusion in their choice of me i had a right to believe myself beloved since that time i have only met with one attachment sufficiently exalted to inspire me with the same confidence as to the interest which i may have appeared afterwards to excite i have never been able to discover whether external causes the voice of fame the splendour of condition the eclat of high literary or political positions were not the attractions which drew towards me admiration and zeal moreover by marrying charlotte my whole character in life would have been changed buried in an english county i should have become a country gentleman not a single line would have ever fallen from my pen i should even have forgotten my language for i was accustomed to write in english i began to think also in english would my country have lost much by my disappearance if i could lay aside what has consoled me i would say that i might have reckoned already many days of calm instead of those of trouble which have fallen to my lot what would the empire the restoration the divisions and quarrels of france have been to me i should not have been obliged every morning to palliate faults and to combat errors is it certain that i have any real talents and that these talents have been worth the sacrifice of my life will my memory survive my tomb and should it do so will there be after the transformations effected in a world changed and occupied with other things will there be a public to listen to me shall i not be like a man of former times unintelligible to the new generations will not my ideas my feelings and even my style be things wearisome and obsolete to a scornful posterity will my shade be able to say as that of virgil to dante poeta fui et cantai i was a poet and have sung 
returned to London. When returned to London, I was unable to find any repose. I had fled before my destiny as a malefactor before his crime. How painful must it have been for a family so worthy of my homage, respect, and gratitude, to have experienced a kind of refusal from a man unknown, whom they had hospitably received, and to whom they had offered a new home with a simplicity, and an absence of suspicion and precaution characteristic of the manners of the patriarchal times. I continually dwelt on the vexation of Charlotte, and the just reproaches to which I might be, and ought to be, subjected, for, in fact, I had gratified myself by indulging an inclination which I knew to be unlawful. Was this, then, really a deceitful attempt vaguely made to gain a lady's affections, without reflecting on my blamable conduct? But either by stopping, as I did, in order to remain an honourable man, or by passing over the obstacle, in order to give myself up to a desire condemned beforehand by my conduct, I must have plunged the object of my deceit into regret or sorrow. From these painful reflections, I allowed myself to indulge in others not less full of bitterness. I cursed my marriage, which, according to the false suggestions of a mind at that time highly morbid, had obstructed my true way in life, and deprived me of happiness. I did not consider that on account of the lowness of spirits to which I was subject, and the romantic notions of liberty which I cherished, a marriage with Miss would have been as painful to me as a union more independent. One thing remained pure and delightful within me, although profoundly sad. The image of Charlotte, that image eventually overruled my rebellious feelings against my lot. I was a hundred times tempted to go back to Bungay, not with a view to present myself to the afflicted family, but to conceal myself by the roadside, to see Charlotte pass, to follow her to the temple where we had the same God, if not the same altar, and to offer to that woman through the medium of heaven the inexpressible ardour of my wishes, in order to pronounce, at least in thought, the prayer of nuptial benediction, which I might have heard from the mouth of a minister in his temple. Wandering from resolution to resolution, I wrote long letters to Charlotte, which I immediately afterwards tore to pieces. A few insignificant notes, which I had received from her, were regarded by me like a talisman, ever present to me in thought. Charlotte, beautiful and tender, followed, purifying my steps by the paths of the Cephid, she absorbed all my faculties. She was the centre through which the whole of my intellectual nature passed, as the blood passes through the heart. Everything became distasteful to me, for I was constantly drawing comparisons to her advantage. A genuine and unfortunate passion is a poisonous leaven, which remains in the depths of the soul, and would spoil the bread of angels. The places where I had walked, the hours which I had passed, and the words which I had exchanged with Charlotte, were all engraven on my memory. I saw the smile of the wife who had been destined for me. I touched her dark hair with a feeling of respect. I pressed her beautiful arms to my breast, like a chain of lilies, which I might have worn round my neck. I was no sooner in a retired place than Charlotte, with her fair hands, placed herself at my side. I felt her presence, as one breathes by night, the perfume of unseen flowers. Deprived of the society of Angon, my walks became more lonely than ever, and gave me full liberty to conjure up the image of Charlotte. There is not a heath, a road, a church, within thirty miles of London, which I have not visited. The most retired places, a bank of nettles, or a ditch full of thistles, every place which seemed neglected by man, became to me preferred, and in these places Byron already breathed. With my head resting on my hand, I contemplated these despised localities. When the painful impression which they produced affected me too much, the remembrance of Charlotte intervened to turn everything to rapture. I was then like the pilgrim who, when arrived at a solitary place within sight of the rocks of Sinai, heard the nightingale's song. In London, people were surprised at my ways. I looked at no one. 
I never made any answer. I knew not what was said. My old companion suspected I was touched with madness. Extraordinary meeting. What happened at Bungi after my departure? What became of the family into which I had carried joy and mourning? Always bear carefully in mind that I am now an ambassador at the court of George the Fourth, and that I am writing in London in 1822 what took place in London in 1795. Some matters of business have prevented me for eight days from continuing the narrative which I now resume. During this interval my valet de chambre came one morning between twelve and one o'clock to inform me that a carriage had stopped at my door and that an English lady asked to speak with me. As I made it a rule in my public situation to refuse an interview to none, I desired the lady to be shown up. I was in my library. The lady was announced, and I saw a person in deep mourning enter the room. She was accompanied by two beautiful boys, of about the respective ages of sixteen and fourteen, also in mourning. I advanced to meet the stranger. She was so affected that she was scarcely able to walk. She said in an almost inarticulate voice, My lord, do you remember me? Yes, I recognised, miss. The years which had passed over her head had still left spring there. I took her by the hand, made her sit down, and seated myself by her side. I was unable to speak, my eyes filled with tears, and through these tears I looked at her in silence. By all that I experienced I felt how deeply I had loved her. At length I recovered the power of speaking in my turn. And you, madam, do you remember me? She raised her eyes, which she had cast down, and the only answer was a look, smiling and melancholy, as a long remembrance. Her hand was still in mine. She said to me, I am in mourning for my mother. My father has been dead for several years. These are my children. As she said these last words, she withdrew her hand, sunk into her armchair, and covered her eyes with her handkerchief. She soon resumed. My lord, I speak to you now in the language which I tried with you at Bungay. I am confused. Pardon me. My children are the sons of Admiral, to whom I was married about three years after your departure from England. But at present I have not self-possession enough to enter into details. Allow me to come again. I asked her address, and offered her my arm to conduct her back to her carriage. She trembled, and I pressed her hand to my heart. The next day I called on Lady, and found her alone. Then there began between us that series of Do You Remembers, which recall a whole life. At each, do you remember, we looked at each other. We tried to discover in our faces those traces of time which furnish a cruel measurement of the distance from the point of departure, and the length of the way which has been passed. I said to Charlotte, How did your mother inform you? She blushed, and interrupted me quickly. I have come to London to request you to interest yourself in favour of Admiral's children. The eldest is anxious to go to Bombay, and Mr. Canning, who has just been appointed Governor-General of India, is a friend of yours. He might take my son with him. I should be very much obliged, and would like to owe to you the success of my eldest child. She laid great stress on these last words. Ah, madam, replied I, what do you recall to me? What a reversion of destinies! You, who received a poor exile at your father's hospitable table, you who have sympathized with his sufferings, you who perhaps may have entertained the idea of raising him to a glorious and unexpected rank. Is it you who are come to claim my assistance in your own country? I will see Mr. Canning, your son, whatever it cost me to give him that name, your son, if it is within my power, shall go to India. But tell me, madam, what effect has my new fortune produced upon you? How do you regard me at present? The phrase, my lord, which you employ, appears to me much too harsh, Charlotte answered. 
I do not consider you at all changed, not even grown old. Whenever I spoke of you to my parents, during your absence, I always gave you the title of my lord. It seemed to me you ought to bear it. Were you not in my eyes as my husband, my lord and master? This graceful woman, as she pronounced these words, had something about her which reminded me of Milton's Eve. She was not born of another woman. Her beauty bore the impress of the divine hand by which it had been moulded. I hastened to Mr. Canning and Lord Londonderry. They raised difficulties about a petty place, just as would have happened in France. They promised, however, in such fashion as court promises are made. I gave an account of my progress to Lady. I saw her again three times. At my last visit she told me she was just about to return to Bungay. This last interview was mournful. Charlotte still talked to me of the past, of our retired life, our readings, walks, and music, of last year's flowers and the hopes of former times. When I knew you, she said, no one pronounced your name. Now, who is ignorant of it? Do you know that I have a work and many letters written by your hand? Here they are. She put a small parcel into my hand. Do not be offended if I do not wish to keep anything of yours. And she began to weep. Farewell, farewell, said she to me. Remember, my son, I shall never see you again, for you will not come to Bungay to see me. I will go, exclaimed I. I will go and bring your son's commission. She shook her head with an air of doubt and retired. Having returned to the embassy, I shut myself in my room and opened the packet. It only contained a few insignificant notes from me and a plan of study, with some remarks on the English and Italian poets. I had hoped to find a letter from Charlotte. There was none. But I perceived on the margins of the manuscript some notes written in English, French, and Latin, of which the faded ink and the youthful writing testified that they had long since been placed on these papers. Such is the history of my acquaintance with Miss. Whilst finishing the relation, I feel as if I am a second time losing Charlotte, in this same island where I lost her the first. But between the feelings which I now experience towards her, and those entertained at the period the tenderness of which I recall, there is all the distance of innocence. Passions have interposed between Miss and Lady. I could no longer offer to an ingenuous woman the sincerity of desires, the sweet ignorance of a love bounded to the limits of a dream. I wrote then on the billows of sadness. I am no longer tossed on the sea of life. Well, had I folded in my arms as a mother and wife, her who had been destined for me when young and a bride, it could only have been with a sort of rage, to blot out, to fill with sorrow and extinguish, those twenty-seven years given to another, after having been offered to me. I must regard the feeling which I have just recalled as the first of that kind which ever entered my heart. It was, however, not at all in sympathy with my stormy nature. It would have corrupted it, it would have rendered me incapable of long enjoying holy delights. It was when embittered by misfortunes, already a pilgrim beyond the sea, and having begun my solitary wanderings. It was when the mad ideas described in the mystery of René took possession of me, and made me the most afflicted being on the earth. However that may be, the chaste image of Charlotte, by causing some rays of a true light to penetrate the depths of my soul, first dissipated a cloud of phantoms. My demon, like an evil genius, plunged again into the abyss. It awaited the effect of time in order to renew its apparitions. End of chapter 23